This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Test of Spirits," was recorded at Wellspring Church on March first, twenty twenty. The text for this message is First John chapter four, verses one through three. I'm going to read First John chapter four, verses one through three. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, some of you might have. Heard about this, but one of the countries that has been most hit by the coronavirus is South Korea. And actually, in the past couple of weeks, the numbers have doubled on a regular basis. And the reason for the spread, especially the fast spread in that particular country, is because of a cult group, and it's called New Heavens and New Earth, or in Korean, it's called Shincheonji, and. The thing about this cult group is, is what's unique about them is they're so secretive in their membership because their primary tactic to to get members is to go into Christian churches to pretend they are just like everybody else and to try through relationships to convince them to join this cult group. In fact, if you were to go to churches in South Korea, you will find that. On the very front door, there's always a sign that says, "If you are part of this cult, you're not allowed to come in." It's it's that blatant. In fact, there's a story of one church that where this is very early on when the cult was formed. The pastor had heard about it and said, "Okay, if any of you are part of this cult, I want you to stand up and leave." And half the church left. This is tragically incredibly successful. It's worked so well that this cult group has refused to tell the government uh, who has been who's part of their church because they don't want to tell them because they're all planted in different churches as secret members to try to convince everyone to leave the gospel to the Christian church. Because of this, this virus has spread because of one person going to a prayer meeting and then just multiplying. When I heard that story, there's a A really fundamental question that you have to ask, and the question is: This is how is it that a cult group can go into Christian churches and so easily convert Christians who are regularly hearing, hopefully preaching about the gospel? I mean, that should bother us. The fact that they're actually successful—it shouldn't be that way. In other words, it should be that if a cult group secretly came into this church and tried to infiltrate it, and if they're trying to tell you something that is different than the gospel that is being preached in the New Testament, there should be some sort of red flag warning indicator in your brain that says something is wrong here. So it shouldn't be a success, and yet it is. How does this happen? This happens because they are. Not testing the spirits. That is to say, that Christians who are in Christian churches are just simply receiving without thinking, or without processing, or without looking at why do I believe what I believe, and 
Am I sure I understand this? Not just as a religion, but as truth. To root out these deceitful spirits, John tells us three things. First, we need to know the reasons why we do not test the spirits. We actually have to think about, why don't I test spirits? What's going on that's causing me not to be discerning? Secondly is the reasons why we must test the spirits. Why it's so important that we are actively engaged in thinking about our faith, about the gospel. And then third is John talks about, and the Bible essentially talks about, different tests that we can use to discern the different spirits. So my hope is that through John's words, that it informs, it equips you, and prepares you for actually a world where there's a lot of false teaching. And we have to be able to know, how do I discern what's right? How do I discern truth? So first, the reasons why we do not test the spirits. Primarily, the number one reason is deception. If you look at verse 1 again, beloved, do not believe every spirit. When you look at what John is warning against, do not believe every spirit. He gives that warning because here's the problem. People are believing every spirit in the church. Remember, this is a, a letter that he's writing to the church because he's hearing about Christians in the church who are starting to believe all sorts of things and they're not really recognizing that they're believing such things. That is to say, it is very easy to believe every spirit. And every spirit comes in various forms. Primarily, the reason why we do believe every spirit is because they don't look evil. They don't look deceptive. It's not as though someone comes up to you and says, I'm going to give you a deceptive word. I'm going to try to deceive you and to lie to you so that you can believe me. They don't do that. They actually just sound convincing. And so they don't look outrightly evil. They can look charming, comforting, even authoritative. And to the point where you actually take someone at their word just because they're convinced, so convinced about it themselves. I've often um, mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones He's a pastor, preacher from the late 1950s and uh, 1900s. And he was riding on a train in England. And he had heard a commotion in the back of the train. And so he went back there to see what was going on. Because there was a group of people surrounding a man. And this man was having an epileptic seizure, a fit. If you know anything about Martin Lloyd-Jones, he not only was a pastor, but before he was a pastor, he was a, he's a trained physician. He went to medical school. He was actually on target to be uh, one of the royal physicians under the king. And he left that lucrative, very, uh, lucrative you know, career to be able to go into the ministry. Well, he goes back there and he sees this man having a fit. And they're all, he looks at them and all the people are saying, this man's having a heart attack or he's having a stroke. We need to take him, stop the train and get him to a hospital. And he says you know what? Everything's going to be okay. He's only having an epileptic seizure. And in fact, if you take him to a hospital, he's going to be really upset because he's going to say, my whole day has been ruined. I just had an epileptic seizure. I'm totally fine. So he was trying to convince them, all the people, do not stop the train and take him to the hospital. Well, he ended up, the man was fine, got off the next stop. Everything was okay. 
But what he said is that he never told anyone that he was a doctor. He just said it with authority. We don't have to stop the train. He only is having an epileptic seizure. Everything will be okay. And they, at first, didn't really know what to do. And then suddenly they all, he convinced them all. But he never told them he was a doctor. Now here's the question. Why did they believe him? You know, it's one thing if he were to say, I'm a doctor. I have this medical training. This man is having an epileptic seizure. He will be fine. Everything will be okay. That we all get. But what we don't get is, is someone who just says, everything's fine, it's going to be okay, and then everyone says, okay, I, I believe you. Why does it happen? It happened because he was convincing, and he spoke with authority. The problem was that the authority was not based on anything other than maybe his tone of voice, his demeanor, just what he looked like. And he makes the point that that's so often the case with t far too many people in the church. That simply someone who is eloquent up here or who uses really big words, big theological words, or maybe is really funny, someone who's engaging, someone who can make you cry with really moving stories and you leave here and you just feel all mush and so, so moved. And that just means, wow. They made me feel that way, so therefore it must be true. Now listen to that statement. They, that person made me feel this way, therefore it must be true. My friends, that is the condition of the American Western Church. It is the idea that we think truth is based solely on subjective experience not on an objective truth reality. And when that happens, we are floating alongside the culture just as much as the rest of the world. That is a deception. It's not the deception of the cults, but it is just as much a deception of believing that how I feel, what I experience, and if that experience is strong enough, Therefore, it must be true. Cults are some of the most practiced at making people feel like they belong. They really are great at it. Actually, when you think about how often, and maybe some of you here are here because you're saying, I'm looking for community. That's the first idea of why we select a church. But may I say that and warn you that if you should ever move on to another church, you ever move out of the Bay Area and go to another church, if your first priority and criteria of finding a church is community, then you know what's a great community is the Mormon community. Jehovah's Witnesses are wonderful at it. The Boston Church of Christ, they're really excellent at community. You know, most cult groups are really, really great at community. They will be your full network. They'll make you feel good. But what they are not is truthful. And so it really begs the question, why do we seek something that ultimately will never truly satisfy and actuality can be incredibly deceptive? Again, it's not to underplay the role of community, but it's to say that when that takes primacy and far too often in our day and age, we want a church where 
I'm friends with everybody. I feel so warm, so loved. And I, I, I gotta make this qualifier. It's not to say that we shouldn't feel warm and loved. But warm and love alone, again, that happens in the cult groups. And so what distinguishes a cult group from a Christian, Christ-centered, gospel, word-based church is truth. Often when I talk to college students, and I've, every time someone goes to college, I've, what I've been doing is trying to send them a list of, hey, here are the churches, and I try to do some research for them. Actually, parents, you should be doing this research for your students as they're going to college. As soon as they're applying to college, one of the first things you should do is look and find churches. Go to places like Gospel Coalition or, you know, or Nine Marks and look up Church Finder and find about five churches, contact them. That's what I do with my kids. And I try to do that actually even for your kids. And I'll send a list and say, check out these churches. And they usually come back and say, hey, I found this church and the people there are so warm. I won't even name the church. If you want to know, come and ask me after. They're so warm. And they're most active in evangelism. They are most just deeply providing fellowship. They they will go to your room and, you know, give you welcome gifts and be with you. And I always say, be careful. Be careful. Here's what they believe. I'll give them a list. And I'm thankful because... Most people have said, okay, yeah, thank you so much for that information. They've actually taken it. But here's the thing is that we need to be proactive. If we're not proactive in processing all this, we will be deceived. It's one or the other. There's no nothing in between. If you're not actually considering what a church believes, then you're not engaging this your mind, which God has given to you, to impact your heart. The Apostle Paul says, uh, warns Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And listen to that warning, heed it, consider it, is that people will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That is to say that if you have a certain agenda, again, these are not bad things. I want community. I want a church that has a heart for unreached peoples around the world. I want a church that is reaching the homeless. I want a church that teaches me how to be a better parent. All of these things have fruitfulness to it. They have its place, but they're meant to be fruits of an affected heart that has been transformed by Christ through his word. And if I make any one of those things elevated above the word of God, then I succumb to every false teacher. That is to say that what I'm keying in on is all I care about is social action. All I care about is reaching unreached peoples. And then we lose sight of why are we reaching these people? Why, why are we impacted by those who are impoverished? Why do we care about the lost? Why do we care about our children, our families? So know this is that that type of what Paul is describing in Second Timothy is called consumerism. That is the God of our age. 
the idea that you can essentially go to church as you would to Walmart, get an oil change while buying bananas, picking up some nails for your wall, and do all these things that we pick and choose and say, I want all these things, and I want it all in one building. Rather than thinking, well, what does that building teach? What are they causing me to think, and how do I consider life? So deception is one of the key things. Secondly is laziness. Frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, laziness is a big part of why we do not test the spirits. Because it actually takes work. You actually hear a sermon. And you know what? If you hear something, it's easy to just sit there and listen and be like, oh, that was nice. Or I was moved, impacted. But how often do we take that and then discuss it? Maybe even analyze it. Maybe even research it. I want you to do that to the messages that I preach or anyone who is here. I want you to test it by God's word and say, does that align with the Bible or not? I am not here saying, listen to me because I'm saying it. There is no authority that I have over you. The authority that any authority that I have is always derivative from God's word. And you have every authority to go to God's word and to evaluate it on the basis of his word. Not on the basis of, oh, I feel this way, or I heard, I read in this book, you know, in Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, I read this and it must be true, or, or I read, saw this on CNN or on Fox or whatever. But it has to be, here's God's word, here's what you said. I don't know if that aligns with it, or I see what you said and it does make sense in line with God's word, so therefore, I receive it. That's what Paul discovered from one group of people, Jewish people in Berea in Acts chapter 17 verses 11 through 12 he describes it this way now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things that Paul was preaching about were so many of them therefore believed there's a really important progression that happens first there's eagerness there's eagerness. And it is important to note that we're, you know, it's easy to think, well, as I'm sitting here listening to you speak, are you telling me that I should be cynical about every single word? That doesn't sound eager. That is to say that you have this mental checklist that you're going through. Okay, he said this and he did that. That's good. That's good. And trust me, we learned that in seminary, actually, how to evaluate preaching. It's very hard for me sometimes to go listen to sermons because I have this checklist in my brain. Okay, the introduction was like this, and the exegetical exegesis was like this, and hermeneutics are like this. And it, it can sound cynical. But you look at the Bereans, and they're not cynical. They're eager. I think what Paul is saying and what Luke is recording is that the Bereans, they wanted, they were so hungry for God's word. That's what underlined their ability to process. It wasn't, I'm going to critique this person. Rather, it's, I'm going to evaluate this because I want to know God. And I want to delight in Christ more than anything else. And so, therefore, they were eager. Secondly, because of that eagerness, they examined. They decided to do the work of flipping pages. You know, when you hear a message and someone says, Oh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 18, 
sometimes you could just look up the verse and see, is that really true what they're saying? And read the context because a lot of times it's one verse. So you want to read the whole context and say, well, I'm going to make sure. Or you can write it down and say, I'm going to look this up when I go home. Or I'm going to discuss this. When you go home, discuss it with a friend, with a roommate, with a spouse, with a sibling, with a parent. And say, you know, they said this. And I really want to wrestle through that. The examination of the word daily to see. Is this so? Because if it is so, and if it is true, and you've decided to pass it aside, that means you're saying, I don't really care. But if it is true, then it should be, I want. I need to change my life a little bit more. Like something, something needs to be different about the way that I think of the world. After that, look at the result. Many of them, therefore, therefore is a key word. It actually means because of all that has happened, believe. So the eagerness, examination, checking, seeing if it was so, belief. Faith is directly tied in to our understanding of God's word. But if we're not willing to do the work of actually examining it, then it's no wonder we leave home after a sermon, after a Sunday, and we're not impacted at all. We're not changed. We might say, oh, that was good. That was nice. I really liked that sermon. Or you might have cried. You might have laughed. But then we all know how it works. Is, as James describes it, it's like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. It's what happens every Sunday so easily. Oftentimes because of laziness. Thirdly, it's because of irrelevance that we do not test the spirits. We just don't think it matters. We hear a word like doctrine and theology, and those sound so, I don't know, just high ivory school, high tower words. Things that, that's just for a select few people, for people who are theological professors or for pastors, but not for someone like me. You are wrong. Doctrine, theology, those are words that essentially mean this is what the Bible says. If it is true, then I need to learn it. Because the truth of it all actually is what makes that which is practical. So if I were to say, come up here and say, instead of this message, were to say, I'm going to give you 10 ways that you can be a better parent. And I'll give you a bunch of moral listings, and you could say, wow, that's a lot of fruitfulness. And I actually could think of 10 practical things that all of you as parents could do better as parents. I could do better too. But if that's it, and it's not rooted on Scripture at all, but and it's only based on pulling verses out of context, then it doesn't mean much. And it actually can be do the opposite. It doesn't help you to be a better parent at all. What helps us to be a better parent is to actually be someone who understands what drives, what is the motivating factor as to why I should even consider being a better parent. And that is the gospel of Christ based on his word. It is because we do not think doctrine matters, teaching matters enough that we falter and fail to discern the Spirit. So therefore, anything that we hear, we just think, oh, that's that's great, that's okay. I often, sometimes I go to church websites because someone is looking for a church. They've moved, college student, 
and I'll look at their statement of faith. And there are some key indicators, if you want to know what a church believes, just by the way they describe certain parts of what they believe as a church. Number one, do they use the word inerrant or without error or without error in the original manuscripts when it comes to the Bible? Because any other word, including very big words like having a high view of Scripture, having a, a view of Scripture that leads to a life in rule and practice, which is quite often used in statements of faith, that basically is essentially saying we believe the Bible has a very high place, a very high place to live out our lives as Christians, but it actually is erred, it is wrong in certain areas of it. Now, this is not a, a, a sermon on the inerrancy of Scripture, but the number one question that you should be asking is, if the Bible is wrong in that area, why should I think it's right in that area? Once it's wrong in one area, you have every right to question whether it is wrong in every area. And there's all sorts of reasons why, but when a church refuses to put in the word inerrant, it is without error. They do so very intentionally because they're saying we don't believe that. When a church refuses to talk about the phrase substitutionary atonement, that is to say that Jesus took my place on the cross, my sins are born, he bore that for himself, and I am free, there are churches that will not use that phrase because they just do not believe it. And that is at the core of the gospel. So when you're looking for a church, I can't tell you how many times that people just simply say, I just want community. I just want to find friends. I just want to feel comfortable. I just want really great music. I really want a church that is impacting the community at large. I want a church, and as someone who's been in ministry for now many years, there are people come with all sorts of reasons why to join a church. Hey, do you do this? Do you do that? And it's easier to get sucked into that and think, I got to try to appease everybody. But you know how that works. Try to please everyone. We all know how that works out. At the end of the day, what Paul is saying is right. This is a time of itching ears. People will not endure sound teaching. That's not something I'm saying. Paul's saying that to Timothy. And he's saying that back then, even more so today, in our constant flurry of social media and all these things that is constantly critiquing everything. We have to recognize this is why we do not discern the spirits at all today. Or we have a hard time doing it. So you understand that, I hope. So here's the question. Why must we test the spirits then? First, according to John, we need to know the origin of the spirit. We need to know where it comes from. We need to, as he says, to see whether they are from God. You know why that is the case? Because it is possible for a spirit to come and you might be wondering, what does it mean by spirit? Is it like an actual demonic, angelic figure? It could be that. But it could be in the form of a false teacher, a false prophet, someone who's teaching. 
maybe in a Bible study context. It could be someone, you just a friend. Remember, I was telling you about that cult group in Korea that literally goes in to a church and tries to befriend everyone to be exactly like everybody else, but they start saying all these things that are so wrong. See, it, that spirit is in many different forms. And it can even, as Paul says in Galatians 1.8, can look like an angel from heaven. But even if we, or an, even if we, the apostles, that is to say, even someone who has, who has a, apostolic authority, apostle-like authority can come. Or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. Paul's saying that because there were people doing exactly this. John is confronting this group of people in his church, in these churches. There are people coming in saying, listen to us. We have the same authority as John does. And so if you are listening to someone like John and another person like John, and they're telling you what to, what you should obey and listen to, how do you discern it? How do you figure out, well, which one is right? Which one is true? That's why John and Paul are writing such things. We have to know where is this spirit from? First Timothy 4.1, Paul tells Timothy something else. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is not, it's a possibility. This happens because Satan is out to steal, kill, and destroy. We have to know, and I'll talk, that's why the last part of this message is so important. The test. How do you discern it? But the origin matters. Secondly is that the battle is there. The very fact that there are false prophets and teachers and spirits attempting to deceive you and turn you away from Christ and his word, it reveals there is a spiritual war. In fact, as I've been going through First John, it's just dawned on me and it's just impressed upon my heart. It's the next series I want to do is on spiritual war from Ephesians chapter 6. Because I do think, as a church, we face some battles. And I think it's ongoing. It's a regular part of being a Christian. And Paul says, uh, Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil heaven, in the heavenly places. That's not That verse is not just for if you're a charismatic Christian. That's for every Christian. We're facing battle. And it is a battle that is ongoing because, as John says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And they come in all forms, cult groups, prosperity gospel, legalism is a false prophet, licentiousness is a false prophet. What One thing you have to know is that the false prophets come from mostly inside, not outside. They are outside. Definitely. But recognize their inside. In fact, we see this in verse 1. They've gone out. Right? For many false prophets have gone out. Gone out from where? From us. They've actually gone, been trained here, grew here, and they leave, and they have now a prosperity gospel. Which is, if I pray this much, God must answer me positive. Give me what I want. If he doesn't give me what I want, 
then he's not a kind God. That's a prosperity gospel thinking. That's a false gospel. And legalism is that as well. I can follow God and obey him enough where he shows favor to me as long as I obey the rules. If I obey the rules and do the works, God is going to bless me. That's sort of the prosperity gospel legalism. And it is, it's a death to the soul. Licentiousness is the same on the flip side of that coin. It's, I can do whatever I want and God's grace is sufficient for me and he'll cover everything. Therefore, I don't need the law. I don't need to consider sin. This type of thinking has gone out of the church. John talked about it again in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. My greatest hope is that as a church, as long as you are here, whether it's one month, one year, ten years, twenty years, that when you, if and when God calls you to a new place, that you will, first of all, go to a church that actually delights in the gospel and his word has sound doctrine. Secondly, is that you will be serving in those places. You'll be looking to grow even more rather than simply sitting back and say, you know, Wellspring, I had to do a lot of work. I had to set up, put up signs. I had to do communion. I had to play in the band. I had to lead a Bible study. This is my time to relax. So I'm going to go to this really big church where I don't have to think about anything. I'm just going to go to that one across the street because it has a really great children's program. And when I go there, I just feel like I can just be in the back. And that type of thinking is what John says is a gone out thinking. It's thinking that I don't need to make an impact in the world that I'm Because this is not the only church. There are so many that are wonderfully doing gospel ministry all around the world. But it really is about our hearts. Wherever God plugs you in, are you going to be used by him and not simply settle? And then faith. Faith is another way we must test the Spirit. Um, you will not grow in faith without testing the spirits. It's a part of your growth, your life. You can help others to grow by actually being a person who tests the spirits, by asking questions together, by growing together, by learning together, by reading good books together, by memorizing the Bible together. That it's not just about reading the practical books. And I know, I know it's hard to read. Um, let me tell you something about reading. First of all, I used to never read. Only when I had to for class, and even then, it was very difficult. But one day, I decided, and this is after being a pastor, not before, after, way after actually. One day I decided, you know what? I heard a sermon by John Piper, and he was talking about how he was a very slow reader, and he didn't like reading either. And I know many of you can sort of affirm this and say, I don't like reading either. Well, here's the thing. If you read three pages a night of a book, do you know that how many books can you read? You can finish you know, quite a, a, a 
good amount of books a year. You can, you'll, you'll read about 600 pages a year, a little bit more. That's maybe two and a half to three decent sized books a year. Now, if, instead of just reading about, you know, all sorts of romance fiction or, you know, spy thrillers that just deciding I'm going to read a hard book. Now, three pages. Three pages is not, in fact, so I read every night. And I don't, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to impress you. I read it because it helps me to sleep. <laughs> actually, and I try to read the most boring books I can. And it actually works. I, re I read about anywhere from five to ten. And by the time I'm at ten page, I, I can't keep my eyes open. I put it down. But because of that, I probably read anywhere from 10 to 20 books a year. And that's not even that much. Maybe more. I don't know. That's not because I'm a voracious reader reading all the time. I just do it at the, as the last thing. And a lot of times, it's to read dense books. Boring books. I don't read intense books. I try not to before I go to sleep. And so, it's about you saying, I, I want to grow. And part of that is reading hard books. Reading books that teach about theology. And if you ever want some recommendations, talk to Thomas. Where's Thomas? He was sitting right there. Thomas will give you some great recommendations uh, about some great books to read. Talk to me. And we'll give you some great books to read. Hard books. But just read three pages at a time. If you try to say, oh, I'm going to read this in one, you know, two days, you're going to hate it. You're never going to read again. So read. Read good books. Read hard books. Read books on doctrine, books on theology, and you will grow. Let me just finish this last section, the tests of different spirits. First, the first test is the Bible. You probably understood that. You knew that. Look at verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. How do I even know that to be true? What John just said, because as the old children's song goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it is so true. That is to say that it is the Bible that places Christ at the center of the story. And until I see that he is the center based on his word, then I won't be able to discern different spirits. I have to actually be engaging scripture. It has to be a part of my life. And there are many different ways you can intake it. You can memorize it. You can read it. You can, you can actually, we give to our members the dwell app. You can listen to it. There are, you can listen to sermons about it. So all these different ways are meant for you to intake it so that you can fight the fight of faith. Looking at how Jesus defended himself in the in the desert, it was all through God's word. And he did that first because that's how you fight against temptation. But secondly, to show us this is possible for you. You can do this. So the Bible and learning and growing and interacting and studying it is such a key part of discerning how to test the different spirits. Secondly is we have to be able to discern it. We actually have to have discerning ears as John says, test the spirits. Or as Luke says, as John, uh, Jesus says in Luke 8.18, consider carefully how you listen. Now, I thought that was so interesting that Jesus 
says that. Because here's the thing of why Jesus is saying that. Is that every day is noise. The news. Social media. YouTube. And obviously Jesus didn't have all these things. Books. Gossip. Um, things at work. Home. So you're hearing constant news. Constant words. And you might even say, Oh, it doesn't matter. Yesterday I was at a, a, a tournament for a, one of my daughters and, um, okay, I, I, you know, my job on the ministry, I don't hear, usually I don't hear expletives that often. So I was at this tournament and I, I was just shocked as to how everybody uses literally every word as an expletive. And I think, is this really the world? I know you're all laughing at me thinking, come on, get your head out of the sand. <laughs> But I was just thinking, this is, if I was not in taking God's word, that would be influencing me. It would. It would change the way that I talk, the way that I think about people, the way I view the world. If we're not combating all of that with God's word, and if we're not considering carefully how we listen, then we will not be able to test the spirits. Charles Spurgeon says this, would you take any drug without checking what it is? When you take pills, do you look at the label or do you say, it doesn't matter what the pill is. I can take as many as I want and it will be fine. Of course the label matters. Of course what you are taking and why you are taking that pill matters. Well, if that's our physical body and we're careful with it, why are we so flippant with our souls? Why are we? I mean, we care, well, many of us care about our physical body. But definitely about pills, we care about that. But we don't care about what we listen to, why we listen to, the music, students, maybe adults too. I always go to Spotify and I, and I think, wait a second, it says, it says explicit. If you're listening to music that says explicit next to it, well, that impacts your mind. If you're watching videos that have certain scenes, that's hard to get out of your brain changes the way you think we have to be discerning next is christ he is our primary means by which we test the spirit because we can always ask the question does this book or anything that i do does it make me have a beautiful picture of jesus does it make me want to know him more do you know that every cult group attacks jesus primarily if from jehovah's witnesses mormons um, that group, Shinchinji, uh, the, what a, pretty much Islam, all world religions, they all attack the person and work of Christ. Because Satan knows full well, if you can knock down people's view of Jesus, Christianity, the gospel is gone. You will turn away. You will. It is, it is so real. And the Holy Spirit's primary role is to make you have a beautiful picture of Christ. Jesus says this in John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does, is he makes you love Christ. He makes you not want to take his name in vain. He makes you, when you sing, to say, to actually weep or to consider him. Because to know 
Truth is to know him, to know all there is about him, to know the gospel. The Antichrist spirit is another test. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John is being a little bit more specific about what this test looks like about Jesus. He's saying that a teaching, a book, a preaching, a preacher must not reflect the spirit of the Antichrist. John's already mentioned Antichrist as those who have gone out from us. So remember, Antichrists are not just outside, they're inside. They're perhaps sitting around you. They're perhaps up here. I hope whenever a guest speaker comes, or me, really, you are asking the question, does this person lead me to have a right glorifying view of the sun. And if not, then it should ring a bell. There should be something that is amiss. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11.4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. That is, it is possible for someone to come and preach a different gospel to you. Can you discern what that means? It's not so easy if we're not really studying and considering and asking questions. Don't just be a receiver. Be active, engaged as you listen. Lastly, the gospel. It's the biggest test, you might say, because it's all-encompassing. The Antichrist, as we just read from Paul, preach a different gospel. What is the gospel that they preach? They underemphasize Jesus coming in the flesh. What does that mean? It means that they underemphasize he died for us. He suffered for us. He lived a perfect life for us. That is to say that we have this amorphous, nebulous view of Jesus dying on the cross. What does it mean to be a Christian? He died for my sins. But it doesn't mean much. The, the false teacher actually tries not to explain that. Tries to make it into a maxim, like a little saying that we all just go around and just a little mantra that we do no different than a Buddhist would. But a Christian says, he died for me. When I... Think of the cross, as we just sang, that mocking voice was not just the Roman soldiers and the Jews. I hear my own voice at that cross mocking him. The gospel says that I am one of the main reasons he went to that cross. A false teacher says, don't feel bad about yourself. You're not that bad. You're pretty good. And so the cross becomes underemphasized. But the gospel says that I'm the reason. He's a substitution for me. I was supposed to be on that cross. I was supposed to be there eternally in hell. But Christ, God's own son, was a substitute and he bore hell so that I might not have to. He was declared, I'm declared righteous. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God for my sins. The gospel is always undermined by false teachers. 
And if a church or a pastor or a theologian or a book just simply thinks, well, you should know that already. The gospel's a given. Let's move on to other things. Just that in and of itself is a big warning sign to say, that church probably does not teach the gospel. It is God's word. He came in the flesh and dwelt amongst us. And if this doesn't sink in intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, doctrinally, then we will be subject to every passing fancy, every new teaching, which is really an old teaching, every cultural shift of the wind, every time something new happens, including a virus, we have to think about it from the lens of Christ. And if not, then we are subject to all that they are subject all, all the false teaching that is all over the place. But thanks be to God that we're not because of Christ the Son. I know this was a longer message than usual, but I wanted to share this with you because I do think that in this age, in this day, it is so important that we actually engage God through His Word with our minds, doctrinally, theologically, and we don't think of it as, that's just for those few people. That is for me and you. Your life is at stake. Your children's lives are at stake. And I agree with Charles Spurgeon. If we care that much about our physical bodies, how can we not care enough about our spiritual bodies as well? Let's pray. Father, I really do pray for Wellspring. I pray that we would be a people who would be able to discern the spirits, to test them. But I pray, like the Bereans, that we would be eager, joyous in the process. We'd examine it deeply. It would concern us when someone is veering off. When we're sending our kids to college into the world where they're living in a, in a, just in a different way, that we wouldn't just simply think, oh, as long as they're getting a great education, they're going to high school, even in the high schools, in the junior highs, in the elementary schools. If we care so much, O oh Lord, about their academic excellence, and yet we don't care enough about all that they're learning in their souls. As your word tells us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And I pray, O oh God, that Wellspring would be a place where we'd be gracious, kind, but we would be urgent. We would take seriously, very seriously, because so much is at stake here. Our own souls are at stake. So we just really ask, O oh God, that you would be praised. You would help us, O oh Lord, have a right view of your word. And I thank you that this communion also points us to that direction, that Jesus suffered, lived the perfect life, suffered, died, rose again, ascended, so that we could be free, so we could have joy. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.